European Heart Journal Issue at a Glance, Volume 37, Issue 26, Focus Issue on Interventional Cardiology, by Editor-in-Chief Professor Thomas Luscher. Controversies in Interventional Cardiology, Eminence, Common Sense, and Evidence. Interventional cardiology has revolutionized cardiovascular medicine over the last three decades. Starting with a simple balloon, and later bare metal and drug-eluting stents and scaffolds, numerous new devices, including occluders for patent foramen ovale and atrial as well as ventricular septal defects, and recently for the catheter-based valve implantation, have been developed and also partly tested in first-in-men studies and randomized trials. In his ESC lecture, Interventional Cardiology, Where Real Life and Science Not Necessarily Meet, Bernhard Meyer from the University Hospital Bern in Switzerland challenges the concept that evidence-based diagnosis, decision-making, and therapy is and should primarily guide the field. He notes that generating and publishing evidence is a tedious job according to ever-new and tightened research practice regulations. Rules will never prevent the typical human behavior to show new things shinier and old things as dustier than they really are. He continues by discussing examples of misguidance by poorly produced or misinterpreted evidence. Coronary stents, for instance, were first underestimated due to the fact that they were generally used in bailout situations where the outcome remained rather dismal. Then they were overused, rather to the detriment of the patient. Now with drug-eluting stents, the overuse persists, but due to the lower rate of restenosis and stent thrombosis is no longer a concern. However, the enhanced potential of drug-eluting stents compared to bare metal stents was poorly exploited for more than 10 years because of reports that slipped through the meshes of good review and publication practice to convey the untenable message that bare metal stents were preferable. Further, Meyer believes that the use of fractional flow reserve for decision has to be questioned. Fixing a lesion is today easier and hardly more complication-prone than assessing it with fractional flow reserve. Closure of the patent foramen ovale may never be properly applied because the collection of the requested evidence takes decades, a follow-up duration that makes research unattractive to physicians and finances. Trans-arterial aortic valve replacement, finally, is certain to eventually supplant surgical aortic valve replacement. However, Meyer suggests this should have already been accomplished as a logical process. The adoption of this remarkable breakthrough technology is slowed down by the quest for providing randomized evidence in patients for whom the evidence should rather be derived from already existing studies and by the quest to triage all these patients in a heart team, meaning to also feed the surgeons, although these patients do not really need them. To put this matter into further perspective, the opinion piece is accompanied by an editorial comment, Eminence, Common Sense and Evidence, written by Editor-in-Chief Professor Thomas F. Luscher from the University Hospital Zurich, Switzerland, which discusses the provocative concepts of Bernard Meyer. One of the issues discussed by Bernhard Meyer is further touched on by Fabian Niedlischbach 
and colleagues from the University Hospital in Zurich, Switzerland, in the review article Percutaneous Closure of Patent Foramen Ovale and Underutilized Prevention, the topic is clinically relevant as paradoxical embolism through a patent foramen ovale is a recognized cause of stroke and catheter-based closure of a percutaneous patent foramen ovale today is a simple and safe procedure. The debate on patent foramen ovale closure is far from settled, in part due to the fact that three randomized controlled trials on patent foramen ovale closure versus medical therapy were negative regarding their primary endpoint. However, as treated as per-protocol analyses, as well as several meta-analyses, report a benefit of patent foramen ovale closure. This again points to the important question of whether in-device trials as treated analysis should be considered solid evidence. Fabian Nietlischbach suggests that it should, and that percutaneous closure of a patent foramen ovale is underutilized currently. A patent foramen ovale not only allows a venous thrombus to reach the brain, but also provides mediators in the venous blood to pass to the arterial circulation. Some of these molecules that are normally disposed of during passage of the pulmonary circulation, for instance serotonin, may cause migraine. Heinrich Mattler and colleagues from the University Hospital in Bern, Switzerland, tested this hypothesis in the randomized PRIMER trial, Percutaneous Closure of Patent Foramen Ovale in Migraine with Aura, a randomized controlled trial. PRIMER was a multicenter randomized trial to investigate the effect of percutaneous patent foramen ovale closure in patients refractory to medical treatment. 107 patients with migraine, with aura and patent foramen ovale, who were unresponsive to preventative medications, were randomized to patent foramen ovale closure with an amplatza occluder, or medical treatment, and 83 completed the 12-month follow-up. Both groups were given acetyl salicylic acid, 75 to 100 mg per day, for 6 months, and clopidogrel, 75 mg per day for 3 months. The primary endpoint was reduction in monthly migraine days during months 9 to 12 after randomization compared to a three-month baseline phase before randomization. Mean migraine days at baseline were 8 in the closure group and 8.3 in controls. The primary endpoint was therefore negative with 2.9 less days after patent foramen ovale closure versus 1.7 days less in the control group. However, according to post hoc analyses, patent foramen ovale closure significantly reduced migraine with aura attacks and migraine with aura days and enhanced responder rates. Thus, the authors conclude that in patients with refractory migraine with aura and patent forum ovale, patent forum ovale closure did not reduce overall monthly migraine days but had an effect on migraine with aura days and attacks. The findings are discussed in a critical editorial by Andreas Luft from the University Hospital Zurich in Switzerland. The most recent development for coronary intervention is bioabsorbable stents or scaffolds used either in stable patients or even in those with acute coronary syndromes. Stent thrombosis, however, seems to be somewhat higher with scaffolds than with regular drug-eluting stents. 
peristent coronary evaginations may disturb flow and have been proposed as a possible risk factor for late stent thrombosis. In their manuscript, Coronary Evaginations and Periscaffold Aneurysms Following Implantation of Bioresorbable Scaffolds, Incidence, Outcome, and Optical Coherence Tomography Analysis of Possible Mechanisms. Tommaso Gori, from the University of Mainz in Germany, describes the incidence, predictors, and possible mechanisms of coronary evaginations 12 months following implantation of bioresorbable vascular scaffolds. 102 bioresorbable vascular scaffolds implanted in 90 patients were analysed with angiography and optical coherence tomography 12 months after implantation. Evaginations were identified as any hollow in the luminal vessel contour between well-apos struts and were classified as major when extending more than or equal to 3mm with a depth of more than or equal to 10% of the bioresorbable vascular scaffolds diameter. 54% of the bioresorbable vascular scaffolds had at least one evagination with a mean volume of 1.9 plus or minus 1.9 millimeters cubed. Major evaginations were only found in one patient and in bioresorbable vascular scaffolds, aneurysms in three patients. The presence of evaginations was strongly associated with that of malapposition and strut fractures. Peristrut low-intensity areas were present in 53% of the bioresorbable scaffolds with evaginations, but only in 26% of those without it. Their presence was independently associated with the presence, the number, and volume of the evaginations and with that of strut fracture. Thus, evaginations detected by optical coherence tomography are relatively common after bioresorbable vascular scaffolds implantation, but, as for modern drug-eluting metallic stents, major evaginations are very rare. Optical coherence tomography evidence of immature neointima and struck fractures were associated with more severe development of evaginations. The findings are discussed in an editorial by Maria D. Radu, from the University of Copenhagen in Denmark. Outcome of percutaneous coronary interventions is not only determined by technical, but also by patient-related factors. Rarely discussed comorbidity has been investigated in the paper Clinical Outcomes of Patients with Hypothyroidism Undergoing Percutaneous Coronary Intervention by Ming Zhang and colleagues from the Mayo Clinic, Rochester, Minnesota, USA. The authors analyzed the association between hypothyroidism and major adverse cardiovascular and cerebral events, or MACCE, in 2,430 patients undergoing percutaneous coronary intervention divided into two groups. 686 patients with hypothyroidism defined either as a history of hypothyroidism or a TSH more than or equal to 5.0 mu per milliliter, and 1,744 individuals with euthyroidism. Patients with hypothyroidism were further categorized as untreated, or those on replacement therapy with adequate, and those with inadequate replacement. The risk of MACCE and its constituent parts over three years was higher in patients with hypothyroidism compared to those with euthyroidism, with a hazard ratio between 1.28 and 1.62 for its different components. 
Compared with untreated patients, or those with inadequate replacement, adequately treated hypothyroid patients had a lower risk of MACCE, with a hazard ratio of 0.69. Thus, hypothyroidism is associated with a higher incidence of MACCE compared to euthyroidism in patients undergoing percutaneous coronary intervention. Maintaining adequate control on thyroid replacement therapy is beneficial in preventing MACCE. The manuscript is further discussed in an editorial by Baris Genzer from the Geneva University Hospital in Switzerland. Our understanding of human coronary physiological behaviour is derived from animal models, but species differences may matter. Furthermore, different physiological coronary parameters may have different clinical values. In their paper, Coronary Pressure and Flow Relationships in Humans, Phasic Analysis of Normal and Pathological Vessels and the Implications for Stenosis Assessment, a report from the Iberian-Dutch-English Ideal Collaborators. Sukhjinder S. Nija and colleagues from Imperial College London, UK, sought to describe physiological behaviour across a large collection of invasive pressure and flow velocity to provide a better understanding of the relationships between these physiological parameters and to evaluate the rationale for resting stenosis assessment. 567 simultaneous intracoronary pressure and flow velocity assessments from 301 patients were analysed for coronary flow velocity, transtenotic gradient and microvascular resistance. With progressive worsening of stenosis from unobstructed angiographic normal vessels to those with fractional flow reserve of less than or equal to 0.50, Hyperemic flow fell significantly from 45 to 19 centimeters per second in a curvilinear pattern, while resting flow was unaffected by stenosis severity. Transtenotic gradient rose with stenosis severity for both rest and hyperemic measures. Microvascular resistance declined with stenosis severity under resting conditions, but was unchanged at hyperemia. Thus, with progressive stenosis severity, the transtenotic rises. However, while hyperemic flow falls, resting coronary flow is maintained by compensatory reduction of microvascular resistance, reflecting coronary autoregulation. This supports the translation of coronary physiological concepts derived from animals to patients with coronary artery disease and suggests that resting pressure indices can be used to detect the hemodynamic significance of coronary artery stenoses. The manuscript is accompanied by a thoughtful editorial by Christian Seiler from the University Hospital Bern in Switzerland. The editors hope that this issue of the European Heart Journal will find the interest of its readers.